When our son, Sam, was, I don't know, about two years old, like a lot of toddlers, he went through a phase where he wanted to do everything himself. He didn't want us to help him, whether that was trying to make his lunch or get dressed or climb into the car or whatever it may, may be. His trademark expression was, I do it myself. And we have videos of him saying this, I do it myself. Now, of course, the problem is at that age, he can't do most things himself. He would try, but he would invariably struggle and, and often fail. So uh, he, would, he would say, I do it myself, and he would grab his T-shirt, begin to put his T-shirt on. But after a few seconds, uh, both of his arms would be stuck in the opening for his head, and his head would be in one of the sleeves, and he would be rolling around in this shirt, unable to escape. And we'd say, Sam, do you want us to help you? And, and we can hear his voice from inside the shirt as he's struggling, saying, I do it myself. No. He doesn't want help. He will do it himself. But of course, eventually, as, as a caring parent, you have to step in and rescue the child, or he would still be stuck in that T-shirt to this day, more than a decade later. He wants to be self-sufficient. He just doesn't have the tools to be as self-sufficient as he wants to be. My son's dilemma is one that is deeply ingrained within our hearts as well. There's something within us that says, if I just try hard enough and struggle hard enough for long enough, I can solve all my problems. I can get rid of all my bad habits. I can reconcile all of my strained relationships. Maybe I can even make myself right with God if I do the right things and say the right things. And so we want to believe that we are self-sufficient. But the problem is, we're not. And for the first several chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has been developing this concept that no matter how good you and I think we are, how, no matter how many works we may pile up in order to earn God's approval, in order to make ourselves right with God, we will always fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We saw that very clearly last week. And so Paul's been developing this concept that the only way to righteousness, that status of being right with God, the only way to get there is for God to give us righteousness for free because we can't earn it. God has to give it to us as a gift of his grace. And so last week we saw this beautiful passage, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, where Paul lays out that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus now earned the righteousness we could never have earned. And when we believe in Jesus, God gives us right standing with him for free as a gift. And yet, and yet, there are some of us, maybe most of us, who even though we have believed in Jesus, there's still that part of us that says, maybe I still need to add something to my belief in Jesus. Maybe believing in Jesus isn't enough, and so I'm going to have a backup plan. So it's faith in Jesus, plus I'm going to work hard just to make sure that I'm really saved. Or faith in Jesus, plus I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely just a little bit on the fact that I was baptized as a young person because maybe that will contribute something to my salvation. Faith in Jesus, plus I'm a good person, plus I go to church, plus whatever. 
And so now in chapter 4, Paul is going to address that tendency that's within all, within all of us to be self-sufficient. Here's the essence of chapter 4. Paul's going to say the gospel is really good news. Why? Because it tells us we're saved through faith alone. Alone. That word alone is what we're going to emphasize this morning as we look at Romans chapter 4. This issue of salvation by grace alone, by, as a gift of God, through faith alone in Christ alone, was at the heart of what we now call the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. During the Protestant Reformation, there were, there were these men in the church who began to look at the prevailing doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church of their day. And the prevailing doctrine of the church of their day was that faith alone is not enough for eternal life, but they held to this, this belief called cooperationism. I cooperate with God in my salvation. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also do good works and perform certain sacraments in order to, to merit God's approval. And yet the reformers came along and they said, no, 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 by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is no other way than simply to receive what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem. Even some of the reformers, even when they emphasized grace, still tried to somehow sneak works in the back door. So you might get in for free, but if you don't keep working hard after you receive your salvation, God might take it away. That's what some of them said. Or you might get in for free, but if you don't keep working hard, you're going to prove you were never worthy of God's grace in the first place, and therefore you were never saved, right? So, so the idea for some was you get in for free, but you keep it by running on that treadmill of works. But what Paul's going to show us in Romans chapter 4 is, no, 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 God gives righteousness for free to all who will simply accept the free gift by believing in Jesus. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard to keep it. You don't have to prove you're worthy of it. You are saved through faith alone. So Paul will develop for us the nature of this saving faith and how it is that we can be saved by the grace of God alone through faith alone. You remember last week, quickly, we talked about the idea of faith. What is faith? Faith is not a work. Faith is a response. Faith is simply like getting onto an airplane. You remember that illustration, I get onto the plane. It's the plane that takes me to the destination. All I do is step on the plane and say, I trust at this moment that this plane, this pilot is reliable enough to get me there. And so Paul now says, I want you to understand the only necessary human response to the grace of God is faith. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Alone. So if you've got uh, your Bible, Romans chapter 4, I want to begin in chapter 1 as, as we develop this concept of saved through faith alone. Paul says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited 
as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take in to account. So the first thing Paul tells us is very simple. Faith does not include works. Faith does not include works. Now, that may sound obvious, but Paul's going to develop this concept because he knows we're tempted to want to add our works to faith in Jesus and say, okay, I believe in Jesus, but maybe I still got to work hard. So he goes to what he considers to be sort of a, a really important case study. That case study, that test case is Abraham. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the one to whom God had given all of these covenant promises. And the reason he goes to Abraham is because a lot of people would say if anybody was good enough to earn God's approval, surely it was Abraham. I mean, Abraham's the the beginning of the nation of Israel. He's really good. He's really righteous. He's circumcised. When God tells him to be circumcised, he circumcises his son. When God tells him to circumcise his son, Abraham is really, really righteous. So if Abraham is righteous enough to earn God's approval, then it's not faith alone, but I can be declared right with God on the basis of works. So he says, if Abraham is justified, declared right with God on the basis of his works, then he has something to brag about, to boast about. He can go, look what I did. I climbed the mountain of God's righteousness all by myself. He goes, he's got something to boast about, but he goes, not before God. In other words, Abraham might be good enough to impress you, to impress me, to impress those who are less righteous than Abraham, but he's not righteous enough to impress God. You cannot earn your way to God's approval based on your works. And Paul says, I want you to notice now what God said about Abraham. And he quotes here Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And most of chapter 4 is just an exposition of Genesis 15, 6. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, reckoned to his account, as righteousness. Now, if you remember Genesis 15, what was going on in Genesis 15? Well, God took Abraham out into the, uh, the night, and he said, Abraham, I want you to look up. I want you to count the stars, if you're able to count the stars. If you can count the stars, just know, that's how many descendants I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars in the sky. Those descendants will inherit the land that I take them to, and through those descendants, I'm going to bless all of the nations on earth. In other words, Abraham, I'm gonna give you all of these promised blessings through descendants that right now do not exist, even though, Abraham, you're a really old man. I'm gonna give you these promises. And then in verse six, Abraham believed God. He simply exercised faith in God's promises, and it says God credited him with righteousness. This was before circumcision. We'll see that in a minute. This was before the law. God into Abraham's account simply reckons him, declares, you're right with me because you've trusted in my promises. So Paul says, if this was true of Abraham, then it's true of you. The only way to be made right with God is to trust in God's promises. Now he's going he's gonna to develop that more fully. In verse 4, then he says, this is the distinction between faith and 
and works. And he goes, look, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. In other words, you come over to my house this afternoon and you wash my car. If you wash my car and I pay you to wash my car, I pay you however much, 10 bucks, $20, that is payment for a service rendered, right? So, so if you do that job, you go, you go to work, you do a job, they give you a paycheck. You don't necessarily go to your boss or to whoever employed you and say, wow, you're so generous. You don't do that because you earned what they paid you. That's the way the payment works. That's the way it works when I, when I work for something and I get paid. But he goes, no, no, no. That's not how God works when it comes to eternal life. It says, instead, the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, the one who doesn't work, that person's faith is now reckoned to them as righteousness. In other words, God gives a gift of righteousness to those who simply believe. God is not operating transactionally. You do for me, I do for you. Because you could never do enough to earn God's approval. Let's, let's talk for just a minute about Christmas. I know it's still 97 degrees outside. Maybe this will make us feel cooler. So if you have kids and they on Christmas morning come out of their rooms, how do they respond to all the gifts that are under the tree? Your children, no doubt, run to those gifts and they tear them open and they rejoice in whatever beautiful, bountiful generosity you have lavished upon them, right? They just rejoice in the gifts. Do they, at any moment in that process, pause and go, Mom, Dad, what do I owe you? They don't even think about that. It's not even on their mind that they should or would owe you anything for all that you have given to them. This is why we, we fill their stockings with invoices, right? No, I'm just kidding. We don't actually do that. Because it's a gift. They don't owe you anything for a gift. Paul says, look, if I work for something and I earn something, the wages I get are what I earned for working. But that's not how God's economy works when it comes to righteousness. Because we could never work hard enough or well enough. Just like your children could never pay you back for 18 years of food, clothing, shelter, and love. You can never pay enough to earn God's approval. And so he doesn't require that. Instead, he says, trust in me that I declare people righteous on the basis of my promises through Jesus Christ. God gives for free what we can't earn by faith alone. And so now he quotes David in the Psalms and David rejoices because he says, God, you didn't credit my sin to my account, but instead you credited your righteousness that I don't deserve to my account. Just because David trusted that God would forgive his sins, God forgave his sins. We know now that God forgives his sins because of what Jesus would one day do. But David simply trusts that God is a God who justifies the ungodly. That if we ask forgiveness, and we ask for his righteousness, and we believe that he gives it, he gives it. So Paul says this is how David operated, it's how Paul operated. All throughout history, eternal life has always been given on the basis of exercising faith in God's promises by faith alone because of what Christ has done. Faith does not include 
works. The imagery would be if all of a sudden you pulled up uh, your bank accounts this week and you discovered that somebody had not only paid off your mortgage, dealt with what you owe, but they had also put enough money in your 401k for you and your kids and your grandkids to have enough for the duration of their lives. Somebody had wiped the debt clean and then filled your account with all the funds that you need. That's what it means that God credits us with righteousness. And, and Paul says, apart from works, it is, it is completely distinct from works. Now, the question is going to come up, then what role do works have in the Christian life? If we are not declared righteous, if we don't earn our way to heaven on the basis of our works, then what good are the works that we perform as a part of the Christian life? I want you to hold on to that question until chapter 6. All right, so three weeks from now, I promise you, we're going to get there. But Paul says when it comes to eternal life, our works do not earn God's approval. Faith does not include works. And then he's going to go on. He says faith also does not require rituals. So follow with me verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing, that is the righteousness of God, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. All right, in a nutshell, what is Paul saying? Well, the argument here would be, look, yeah, but Abraham was also circumcised. He entered into uh, participation in God's covenant by, by fulfilling this ritual of circumcision. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how circumcision was meant to be a sign of one's faith in God's promises. That God had promised to Abraham, through your descendants, through your seed, I will bless all of the nations. And so every baby boy at eight days old in the nation of Israel was circumcised as their parents said, we're exercising faith that God's promises are true for our generation and our son's generation and our grandson's generation, we believe in God's promises. It is an outward sign of this inward faith. And Paul had, Paul had told us, look, that outward sign does no good apart from an internal transformation. Now, there would be some people, though, who would say, yeah, but you still have to have the outward sign. You still got to do it. So you need faith plus circumcision. Only those who join the nation of Israel through this ritual of circumcision can be declared right with God. So, so here's the move Paul makes. He says, look, was Abraham declared righteous before or after he was circumcised? Well, if you know the book of Genesis, you know it was before. Genesis 15, verse 6, God credits Abraham with righteousness. Genesis 17, God commands Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised. Fifteen years later, circumcision arrives on the scene. So what Paul says is he goes, look, if that were the case, then Genesis 15 is a lie. God didn't actually credit him with righteousness at that moment he believed, but only when he was circumcised. 
But that's not what happened. He's given God's righteousness as a gift when he believes. Circumcision comes later as a sign. So think about it this way. A few times a year, I officiate at marriage ceremonies. And uh, at every wedding ceremony at some point, either the night before or on the day of the ceremony, I sign the marriage certificate, right? And the marriage certificate uh, simply says that on this day, at this time, I married these two people. And so then I sign that marriage certificate, and I think the, the couple has to sign it at some point. We put it in an envelope. We send it to the county clerk. The county clerk then sends it back to the couple some three or four weeks later, and it's been stamped, and it's been recorded in the whole deal. So, so sometimes, as I'm signing that marriage certificate, and the couple is standing with me, I look at them, and I say, now, I just want you to remember, until you get this back in the mail, you are not married. Right? Y'all laughed. The couples never laugh. They never actually find this amusing. Right? And then I laugh, and I say, I'm just kidding. Right? This is just a symbol. Right? It, it just is something that, that is recorded in the office of the county clerk. When are you married? You're married when you stand before your family and friends in the presence of God and you make these vows till death do us part. You're married on that day. The certificate is just a, a sign that validates or verifies what happened on that day you were married. That's what Paul is saying about circumcision. It is an outward sign that validates what happened when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The circumcision has no saving value. And and Paul's point here extends, I believe, even beyond circumcision to rituals, for example, like baptism. Every time we participate in baptisms here, we always tell y'all, Baptism is an external sign of an internal reality. Baptism doesn't save you. The water doesn't do anything magical, right? In some ways, it's like circumcision in that baptism historically has sort of been an initiation rite into the church to say, I have believed in Jesus, and now I want to be a part of this community of faith where we worship Jesus together. So I'm going to publicly profess what I already believed in my heart. That's very similar to how circumcision was meant to function. So Abraham believes, and then he's circumcised to indicate he believes, and then every generation practices this sign to say, we believe in God's promises. In and of itself, this ritual carries no spiritual benefit in and of itself, apart from the faith that justifies. And so Paul's point is this. If you're trusting in not only faith plus what you do, If you're trusting maybe in faith plus, I'm going to fall back on the fact that I was baptized or the fact that I was confirmed or the fact that I've been to church so many weeks this year or the fact that I perform any type of religious ritual or service to God. So I'm saying, look, maybe I do believe in Jesus and maybe faith is enough, but maybe it's not and I'm not sure. So just in case I have a fallback plan, Paul's going to say, no, no, not faith plus works. Not faith plus circumcision, not faith plus ritual, not faith plus anything. You add nothing to complete reliance upon what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Faith plus nothing. Faith alone in Christ alone because of the grace of God alone. So he says it doesn't include works. It doesn't include ritual. 
then what does faith do? Well, faith relies simply on the promises of God. It is a complete and utter reliance upon the promises of God to give what I cannot earn, to provide what I cannot provide. Follow with me in verses 13 to 17. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That is uh, Paul's way of saying Jew and Gentile. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So he says, look, Abraham's not declared right with God on the basis of the law. It's not law keeping, but instead a reliance on God's promise. And remember, he says, what did Abraham trust? Abraham trusted God's word. He trusted God's promise. He trusted God's character. At that moment when God said, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do for you and your descendants. You will have all of these descendants who will, who will bless all of the nations. And through your descendants, I will bless all the nations on the earth. And we know from the book of Galatians that eventually the, the seed of Abraham who, who mediated all of the blessings of God to all the nations, his name is Jesus. And so Abraham trusts in this future that God promised that he cannot yet see. And here Paul uses inheritance language. And he says the inheritance that God promised Abraham, this land and these descendants and this blessing on all the world, this great inheritance that Abraham gets, it's not based on the law. Why? Because first of all, the law can never get you there. What the law does is it highlights that we can't get there. And Paul will develop this later in chapter 7 to say what the law does is it highlights the darkness and the sinfulness of my heart. So when I see a command like do not covet, and I remember that just earlier this week, I really wished I could have somebody else's house or spouse or car or job or good looks or whatever, I go, oh, it's in me. The law has highlighted my sin, but it never gets me to God. You can't get there by law keeping. And so he says, Abraham didn't receive that inheritance that way. Not to mention that the law came hundreds of years after Abraham, 400 years later. Paul, Paul points this out in Galatians 3. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. In other words, if the inheritance has conditions, it's not a promise. It's a conditional agreement. But what God promised to Abraham, God has granted it, he says, by means of a promise. He said, Abraham, here's what I will do for you and your descendants. And at that moment, Abraham believes. The inheritance is un. Conditional. Now, some inheritances are conditional. 
you, you may or may not know that uh, people can put a conditional stipulation in their will. My children must do X, Y, or Z. I read about a guy named Henry Budd, who in 1942, he left his, his sizable estate to his two sons, William and Edward, on the condition that through the remainder of their lives, they stay clean-shaven. If they ever grew a mustache, they would forfeit their inheritance. That was his way of controlling them from beyond the grave. That's a conditional inheritance. Paul says God's promised inheritance to Abraham doesn't carry conditions. God, in fact, swears that he will fulfill these promises simply based on who he is. So the inheritance is based on trusting God's promises, not on the law. It requires Abraham to believe that God is good for his word, even when the evidence of Abraham's eyes says differently. So it's not based on Abraham's ability to live up to God's standards, but it's also not based on Abraham's external circumstances or personal situation. This is where Paul now takes us in verses 18 to 22. He says, in hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul says, Abraham had to do something that isn't easy to do. Faith alone, in God's promises alone, is not a work, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Abraham had to believe that God could create what did not exist. That where there was death, God could create life. Where there was hopelessness, God could bring hope. Where Abraham was 100 years old, well beyond the age where he could have a child, and his wife was 90, well, well beyond the age at which a woman could have a child. Abraham had to believe that God could bring life where none existed, despite the evidence of his eyes, the evidence of his circumstances. Paul says that is what faith does. It trusts completely on the promises and the character of God and nothing else to say, even though God has promised a future that I can't see or even fully understand, right? When we think about eternal life, and the kingdom of God, and the blessings of heaven, and forgiveness of sin. We go, I I don't understand, and right now, I don't see that future, because the world doesn't look the way that God promised it one day will look. And death still has a hold in our world. And so I have to believe in the character and promises of a God who says, I will one day raise the dead, bring life out of death. I will bring hope from hopelessness. I will remove sin and defeat the enemy once and for all. I have to be able to look ahead despite the evidence of my eyes and trust in God's promises. This is what Hebrews 11 says about faith. Very, very famous passage. Now faith is the assurance 
of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me pause for a minute and just say, by its very definition then, faith is not sight. Faith requires me to trust in things I don't see without hard proof. Now, there is evidence. We'll talk about that in a moment. But without proof, faith by its definition is not proof. It's faith. It's believing. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. See this beautiful move the writer of Hebrews says is that just as God spoke into being out of nothing all of the world that we see, one day he will, he will call into being once again eternal life and resurrection from the dead for all those who trust in Jesus. And faith looks ahead and says, I can trust what I do not see. Faith is not proof. Now, at the same time, faith is not a blind leap into the darkness, into the arms of, a, of somebody we know nothing about. Because we read about the character of God. And as Paul has been describing, we know that God is the one who created the world in which we live. Abraham had, had talked with God. God had led him. God had provided for him. God had protected him and his family in the midst of battle. God had begun to pave the way for Abraham to go into the promised land. So Abraham had some experience of the goodness and the provision and the power of God. So that when God says, Abraham, now that you've seen who I am, I want you to trust what I say. Abraham believes without proof, but with evidence that God's past faithfulness is the greatest evidence of his future faithfulness to his promises. When I was a kid, sometimes my older brother would say to me, open your mouth and close your eyes and you will get a big surprise. I don't know if anybody ever had siblings who said this. Now, if my mom said this to me, I would get like a cookie or a muffin or something delightful. If my brother said this to me, I never wanted to comply. I would get a mouthful of mud or a cricket or something awful. Why? Because he could not be trusted with my faith. Right? My mom, on the other hand, had demonstrated her trustworthiness over many years. She was the kind of person who gave good gifts. He was not. Right? God is the kind of God who gives good gifts. So, so faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It's a belief that God is good on his word because of who we know God is. That he created the world. He gave us life. He lavishes good gifts. We sit in this room this morning alive with beating hearts with the opportunity to hear from his word and to know him all because of the goodness and the grace of God. And so Abraham had to trust, even without seeing, that this God would offer a future in which his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky, even though he was really old and beyond that age. And that through those descendants, God would create a future for planet Earth that would be infinitely better than what his eyes could see at that moment. He fell back on the promises of God alone. Faith relies on what God has promised. And that's why Paul then wraps up this section by reminding us again, when it comes to righteousness before God, 
It's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus ritual. It's not faith plus being a good person. It's not faith plus church attendance. It is faith alone. Faith is all we need. It is the only response necessary to receive the free gift of eternal life. Verses 23 to 25. He says, now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. So not just for Abraham, this is for us. As those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Paul says it's not just for Abraham. If this was true for Abraham, it's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for everybody who believes in God, who credits the unrighteous with righteousness. How can he do it? Because he's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And the idea is Jesus died because of our transgressions, as we talked about last week, to take the penalty for our sin on his own shoulders, one sacrifice for all time. He is raised again because of our justification. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is validation that he paid the price once and for all to to, uh, allow us to receive God's righteousness for free. So everybody who believes in God who raised Jesus from the dead is now credited with that righteousness that Jesus earned. We are justified based on Christ's righteousness. And what Paul is saying is there, there is no other way. Hear this, there is no other way. We have to fall back completely, 100%, 100% on what Jesus has done, not on anything that we have done. Several years ago, I went with my son to a friend's birthday party, and it was at the rock climbing wall at the wreck at A&M. And uh, if you've ever been on that rock climbing wall, uh, you know that they, they now, they use the, these auto belay systems. Instead of having somebody at the bottom necessarily who is connected to the rope and connected to the ground and then to you, uh, you are connected to this auto belay system, which is basically some kind of a machine. And the idea is that, that if you fall, this machine will increase the tension on the rope and you won't hit the ground, right? It'll, it'll, it'll uh, catch you before you hit the ground. So, so there was a, a young woman who was working at the wreck who was kind of guiding me through my first climb with this auto belay, and I got to the top of the wall, and I'm standing there, and I'm tired from this climb, and she goes, all right, now in order to get down, you have to let go. And anybody who's been in this situation, you, you go, everything in me says, hold on, don't let go. Right, And I'm looking and I'm like, I'm not connected to an actual person down there. I'm connected to this little box. And I don't know what's in there. I don't know who made that. And she goes, the hardest part, she says it, she goes, the hardest part is just letting go. Trust me, it will catch you. And so I stood there for, a, for really a few minutes. I, I hung on thinking, is there any other way I can accomplish this? But I was wiped out. And so I didn't want to climb down. The only way really for me to get down at that moment with the strength I had left was to let go. And so I began to think, okay, uh, other people have done this before me and everybody around me is still alive. And I've watched other people even today doing this and they're still alive. And so, so I took a deep breath, I closed my eyes and I let go. 
And she said, don't even hold the rope. Don't hold the wall. Let go. Put your feet on the wall and just come down. I let go, and sure enough, it caught me, and I went down. And as I was going down, I thought, wow, that's really, really cool. How does this work? I don't know, but it caught me, and I'm alive. Right, but the only way to make it work was I had to put all my weight, all my weight, trusting in that machine to carry me down. Paul says the only way that eternal life works in God's economy, you put all your weight on the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Not on what you do. Not on your goodness. Not on your confirmation. Not on your baptism. Not on the fact that you've been in church every Sunday for the last six years. Nothing else but faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel is good news because we're saved through faith alone. Saved through faith alone. So let me ask first, do you really believe that? That you are right with God by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone? Do you believe that? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you've, you've believed in Jesus alone? for eternal life? Or are you still trusting a little bit in your backup plan, something you're doing, something you are, something you've done? Do you have some sort of faith plus, Jesus plus, here's my backup plan in case God doesn't come through, or really just because I think he needs my help? Or do you believe in Jesus alone, faith alone, in Christ alone? And if you do, do you live like it's true? I'm curious, when you share the good news of Jesus with other people, do you, do you add things in? Right, you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but, but make sure you don't just go crazy with this whole grace thing. Right, Paul's gonna address that in chapter six. Make sure you do this, say this, or God might not let you in. Or in your own life, do you live in a constant state of gratitude and worship because of all that God has done in Jesus Christ? Do you live like it's true, putting all your weight on the promises of God for eternal life?